Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. It's good to have your company. This week we're taking a look behind the scenes, or lines if you will, of a very specific arm of the media, that of cartoonists. While many journalists or columnists need inches upon inches to get their audience to the crux of an issue, the social and political commentary of a cartoonist has the power to do so within one frame. This, however, doesn't make the job any easier. Their work has to provide their audience with not only short and sharp analysis of the issue, but combine their illustrative talent with a hopefully well-developed sense for satire. Joining us on the panel are two giants of the genre. Cathy Wilcox, she's been churning out political cartoons for both The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald since 1989. Her work has won her numerous Walkleys and she's also published two collections of her cartoons as well as illustrated numerous children's books. She joins us from her home in Sydney. Cathy Wilcox, welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi Tina, good to be here. And First Dog on the Moon, another Walkley Award winner. His work first came to prominence more than a decade ago working for Crikey. Since 2014, he's been the regular political cartoonist for Guardian Australia. He joins us now from his very mysterious bolt hole, which is located somewhere in the woods of Tasmania. First Dog, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. It's great to have both of you on. Now, jumping right in, there's a a series of pretty standard pathways to becoming a journalist, but becoming a cartoonist isn't quite as straightforward. I'd be interested to hear how both of you became cartoonists and whether there was a specific moment when you thought, you know, this is what I want to be. Uh, Cathy, do you first? I don't think there was a really clear moment of going... This is that I want to be a cartoonist. Because it's not something you look I, at when you're 16 and, and kind of go, you know, oh, that's what I want to, I, I want to do. You know, that's that's not. No, the... it was much. It was much more subconscious. Um, it was much more um, gravitational than um, than than a conscious decision. Um, although I have made many conscious decisions in my in my life, you know, towards this career. But but it was more the thing of gradually realizing that that the drawing with the words thing was was what I like to do most mm-hmm. I like to do the drawing but I still like the words part I like the funny part um I you know grew up looking for the cartoons and and comics in the paper and you know my dad kind of lit that lit that little flame very early on in my life of just sort of you know reading me the comics and stuff and I also f- felt very comfortable with the newspaper as a format I like the newspaper as a as this sort of daily place where the story changes and evolves and so on and and I pictured myself doing some work in the newspaper I pictured myself you know I kind of thought oh I'd like to be filling those spaces so you you could see yourself in the media then so I I could see myself yeah working working with it with the daily supply of of new stuff and I think in um in sort of subsequent years looking looking at that is also the um the sort of the short attention span thing Right. <laughs> the daily stuff changes because on working on long projects about on the same topic, I, I could easily get bored. And then being given these little spaces to fill, gradually the style kind of formed itself and it reinforced itself such that this became, you know, from gag cartoons to the occasional um, political social thing to purely the political social stuff to you know from the small little spaces to the bigger spaces when when other people would go on holidays or or die or go on leave or whatever and um and then that sort of they never die (laughs) well (laughs) yeah 
alien cartoonist back at the at the age was was really one of my best opportunities. I have to say, um, <laughs> you sort of hitched you know. your um your horse to his wagon. <laughs> well, it just was the it just provided the opportunity, and um and it was the it was also the the like it's not an easy thing to step into out of nothing when you when you're used to just doing maybe small cartoons and someone says oh can you do the editorial cartoon it's a very different gig and this uh person at the time would occasionally call in sick or his daughter would call in for him sick you know he had a a series of illnesses and stuff like that so I was often being asked to do this at short notice and so I must have managed to do it at short notice which is not not an easy easy thing to do that's kind of how I how I got into it it just the more I did it the more the more it was what I liked to do and the less I wanted to do other things. What about you, First Dog? Uh, well, I always wanted to be an actor um, and being a cartoonist was my backup plan and I came to it much later. I, uh, I'd always liked drawing and being funny and clever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, very happy to entertain myself, uh, but uh, I could never convince the editors of any of the major publications to... Um, to take me on, uh, and for that very reason, it was people like Kathy Wilcox was stepping up. And once, I mean, why would you give up being a cartoonist? So once they had their cartoonists, that was it. The opportunities really just didn't uh, didn't pop up unless you know, unless one of them got run over or, or or became simply too old, and that that really happened. So I it was much later in life for me to um, to finally get. Not that much later, but I had to finally get a crack uh, at Crikey, who took me on. And then once you're established as a full-time cartoonist, I think mm-hmm. you're probably pretty hard to get rid of. Uh, and you I both mentioned that, like yeah, a fungus. <laughs> yeah, well, it's yeah, like some sort of weird, weird stain that will not scrub out. Um, and then <laughs> uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to end up at the Guardian. I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll. They'll never get rid of me. The media is is a very, very different landscape, you know, which is not a surprise to anyone than it was, say, 20, even 10 years ago. And I, I mean, you know, and and to anybody who wants, who these days is looking to become a cartoonist, I'd be, I'd be discouraging them. But that's the same, that, that hasn't changed. Being a cartoonist is, it's not a real job. The worst thing about being a cartoonist is that other cartoonists and uh, except Katie, of course, uh, and it's um, <laughs> can be it can be diabolical, but it's it's really really hard to land something like mm. like a full time job as a cartoonist. And um, so you started yeah. you, you started with Crikey, and then you, you you've gone on obviously to the Guardian. Um, and Kathy, you've always been with Fairfax. Yeah, yeah, and also I'd say that that like there's even. Ten, a ten-year difference between my start and uh, and first dogs, in you know trying to get a break because when I started out, there was there was money for taking on contributors and there was right. money for for new new people to walk in and get a get a shot. You know here, you know you can do a cartoon for the guide or the or the good food section or the whatever. You know we we could you could walk in and talk to the editors, and editors of different sections had discretionary budget. To, to spend on mm-hmm. cartoonists. And I had already spent um, a few years in, in Paris. When I finished my, um, my studies at uh, Sydney College of the Arts, mm-hmm. I went to Paris on a, you know, stupid 
idiotic youthful whim <laughs> to find my place in the world. And um, and while I was there, I, I did get some illustration work with um, with some magazines. Um, mm-hmm. But I I already kind of felt that I wanted to have I wanted to draw for newspapers, and so right. I was taking my little portfolio around to newspapers there. And at that point, I was being told, "Well, we already have our plan two, or we already have our, you know, whoever it was at the Liberation." And um, and that is what it then became in in Sydney, sort of, you know, 10, 15 years later. You know, by by ten or fifteen years later, though that that those shifting opportunities sort of dried up because there were already sort of rounds of budget cuts and such, so so that um, people didn't have discretion to just sort of spend them on on you know all right well let's get a few more cartoons in or oh yeah we need another one to you know to fill the space so those um you know there was sort of little a golden decade there where where cartoonists actually would increase mm-hmm. their salary considerably by being poached by another by another newspaper and um it's, it's true we talk of the in whispered tones of the golden <laughs> age when cartoonists were on hundreds and hundreds and thousands of dollars and <laughs> were sort of revered as these you know these mysterious honoured figures and now I, I mean I think it's probably a bit strong to say we're held widely in contempt by the community but we're certainly paid <laughs> as if we are <laughs> right okay. we're certainly not we're not told uh you know what name your price that's for, that's for sure and um at certain newspapers you know people have been told well look you know we'd like to keep you on except that you're too expensive so I'm um, sorry you can <laughs> there's the door so uh right. so that's that's you know that's what it is now you know so very big uh, difference to uh, to how it was 20 or 30 years ago so growing up you Kathy you mentioned that uh, your father always used to sort of bring you over and he'd have his newspaper and he was always pointing you in the direction of cartoons and that's sort of something that you did together what work spoke to you back then when you were growing up what what cartoonists well, the stuff that, that my dad pointed me to was when, when I was really little, he'd be reading me the, the Sunday comics and so the mm-hmm. Peanuts oh, um, yeah. comics in yeah. particular. And, and if, you know, I liked, I liked the funnies. I didn't, I looked at the other ones, the other, those sort of adventure strips um, of Mandrake and, mm-hmm. and so on for the drawing. I didn't read Prince those Valiant. stories. Prince Valiant. That's right. Oh, I, right. I was fascinated <laughs> at those jawlines and, and, and amazing pectoral muscles and things like that. You know, I would I would look at how they were drawn, and mm. so I was I was because I just loved drawing from from drawing people. But for the funnies, then I probably you know gravitated to whoever were the whoever were the cartoonists in in the newspapers that we had. So there were would have been Benia and uh, and uh, Molnar in the very early early years when I was still pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrick Cook, Jenny Coops, um, yeah, the cartoonists who were uh, of the era just prior to me too, the ones who were in the National Times and and so on. The and then by the time I was at um, art college, then everybody was em- emulating Lunig. Funnily enough, yes, Michael, <laughs> the great Michael Lunig. Couldn't admit it now, but we all we all were emulating. You know, he was something that was really different mm. um, to the previous standard type of political cartoon or editorial cartoon. And also, I I began to look uh, overseas, sort of through through the time of my being at art college, and then going yeah. overseas. There were some there were some French cartoonists whose whose work 
I loved and um, and some of the American illustrators, the, the illustrators whose work appeared in um, mm-hmm. in the New Yorker and such and and Sompe and uh, yeah so so you know once you once you sort of have a bit of a taste for the the medium then you then as you get older you start to sort of hunt out other stuff but yeah so it was always the thing the single frame or the or the 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 political or social stuff that interested me more than right. than the long form comic strip or graphic novel right version I, I mean Lunig always comes up in these conversations mm, um, yeah. and when he started in the Nation Review there really wasn't anyone else like him mm. and um, that was the seventies and it was it was a different time as they say uh, well there's there and, was uh, no other paper really like the Nation Review really no mm. there wasn't and look he um, he was he, he was fantastic, and he really made a um, he had a real impact on 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 Tiny First Dog back in the day, um, because <laughs> uh, you know I I mean I read Peanuts and Hagar. Were you first puppy and, back then? Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe Sorry, I'm not bad sure. Joke. I mean, I probably wasn't a first dog. Adorable, I love to think. Yes, no, I was a I was a marvelous child. Um, yeah. Uh, no, I was lonely and weird, uh, but that's that's another story uh, for another time. But so reading, so you'd read Hagar the Horrible and Donald Duck and Spider Man mm-hmm. and and Michael Lunig, yeah. Um, and it was quite it was quite a, a combination. And, and uh, Bruce Petty, I think, uh, uh, yes. probably a, a big influence. He was mm-hmm. the the ideas. Oh, his his wonderful chaos that. Mm that was you know easily identifiable as a as this terrible machine or this politician and these ridiculous squiggly lines that couldn't ever form anything useful and they were just the most the most wonderful cartoons so it sounds like you both and... it, it sounds like you both had a real appetite for 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 cartoons so it was something something that you were able to identify from from quite a young age that obviously had an influence on you both moving on a little bit while the news media seems to be losing you know quite a lot of power and influence cartoons still seem to have held on to their power. You know, for starters, they're very shareable on social media. A good cartoon is, it's not just satire, not just a joke. A, a good cartoon can can really pass comment or even sometimes clarify complex issues. Now, often cartoonists can say what people are thinking, but they, you know, feel uncomfortable to say out loud. How do you view a good cartoon and, and do you feel they still carry power? Kathy, do you? Yes, they look like they they do carry power, and I always think that the proof that they carry power is that there are uh, countries and regimes where removing the cartoonists from currency is uh, is kind of one of the main things that the powerful would would want to do. We, you know, we live in a society where most people can can read the caption and read the story and stuff, but in societies where there might be a lot of people who are deprived of of uh, of an education you know, to be literate, then they can read a cartoon. And especially if it's not a wordy one like First Dogs or Mine, um, they can read a cartoon and, and and have a sense of what's going on and have a sense that it's not the same as what the um as what the leaders are saying. Mm. And uh and so, you know, so cartoonists are are powerful and dangerous in that in that way mm. in various places. And and in places around the world they are they are endangered because they're they're troublesome. And then even in democracies like 
you know, through the through the Trump years, there were very many um, newspapers um, and publications that got rid of their cartoonists or started to tell their cartoonists not to do so many anti-Trump cartoons because right. they were they were getting blowback on that. So that kind of showed that the ultimate well, the ultimate thing that a cartoonist can do is ridic- ridicule the powerful. Right. And once the once the the powerful are are ridiculous, they cease to have power. That's the thing that, that cartoonists do. That's the power that cartoonists do do have. But at the same time, people consume cartoons without necessarily understanding that. So they yeah. kind of they want to be able to see the cartoons, but they kind of don't don't appreciate the the the, the structure that that is required to keep a cartoonist going. Yeah. Um, so they would like to be able to have the cartoons to share to say, oh, look at this one. But they're not going. Okay, some so somebody actually had to had to live in the circumstances to be able to produce that work, and as well, they need to be able to be supported to 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 mm-hmm. do that. First dog could perhaps speak of somebody like um uh, like Eaton Fish on on that matter. Yeah, I could. I no look. I I mean, Kathy always gives better answers. To, to that question than than I do because I I'm a little more I'm a little more cynical I take the oh, the Peter Cook view of mm-hmm. of, of satire that um, you know all those all those cabarets in in pre-war Berlin mm-hmm. um, put a stop to the put a stop to the Third Reich um, yeah. but it, it is absolutely true that, that oh, I admit that, that we fail. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly free to admit that we failed oh, to, to, to change anything. No, but but your your point about cartoonists being in danger around the world is a good one, and the, the changing nature of the media is. Um, I mean, I blame I blame there's a lot. Well, I've got a long list of people I blame, um, but uh, you know, I, the cartoonists certainly aren't at the top of that list. And I hide down here in my little foresty enclave in Tasmania and produce my snide, unpleasant, overly wordy cartoons and people seem to really enjoy them, which is fantastic. And I try to educate and I try to, oh, you know, do all those terrible things like amplify voices and and all that sort of stuff. So take a sort of a more activist view of it. But I think cartooning like any, I mean, it can be as as progressive and as important or as reactionary and, and, you know, dangerous as as, as as any art form really it just has that capacity to punch through and mm. most cartoonists other than me have the capacity to do it in in a single frame and <laughs> so to, to puncture that yeah. pomposity you know and to upset people who are in power is is great it's not the main game it's always seemed to me mm. very much the gesture in the king's court you know I find it really interesting that you've just referred to yourself as an activist because that's something that, you know, from the word go, as soon as we enter the field, journalists are told you're not you're not an activist, you're not here to advocate for the issue, you're here to report the facts and, and tell the story in a very balanced way. But I have to admit, you know, when I do really look at the work of a lot of, of, of cartoonists and a lot of political cartoonists, there does seem to be a bit of a sense of activism w- within the work. What about yourself, Cathy? Do, do you... What do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself an activist or an, an advocate, or are you a storyteller in the more traditional journalistic sense? Well, I suppose I'm I'm like like an opinion writer in a way. Um, right. So I'm not I'm not there at the I'm not there at the reporting level saying that here's here's what's happened and we ha- and let's let's hear from this person and then let's hear from their counterpart on the other side, or whatever. I'm not I'm not 
engaged in any kind of both sides um, exercise. But I am attempting to sort of to come at things from a not from a partisan position, but from a first principles approach, such that I, I want to I want to try and understand. I, I, I can't I can't help myself, but see things from many sides. And so being diehard and having as the prism, you know, I don't I don't want to see things through one prism of saying, well, these guys are the good guys and and so mm-hmm. I will I will always barrack for them or or whatever. And and you know, first I would probably be agree with me there. You know, you can you can be kind of activist on 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 issues, but as soon as you start cheering for particular teams, mm. that becomes kind of pointless because you're as bad as this you know as bad as the the, as the political stooges that you're that you're maybe wanting to criticize right so I don't join a party I don't want my Mm -hmm. my stuff used you know when people from different from parties say can we use your cartoon on our poster for blah 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 I say is it part is it you know political Mm -hmm. partisan or is it party political no you can't use my stuff there if it's a if it's an issue that I care about in particular, you know that I that I have some sense of, of personal investment in, like you know I care about the the, the treatment of refugees and and so forth, and mm-hmm. so there's a refugee refugee advocacy group, then I might lend my work to that. But I don't see that. I I refuse to see that as a partisan political thing. I think everything now we're living in a time, you know. Uh, how was it put by those juice media people? You know, everything they turn everything to shit. The government uh, and the and the politicians mm-hmm. they turn everything to shit. And through this period of conservative government, and through also the the period of the of the Republican Trump presidency mm-hmm. and so forth, they've been so successful at politicizing everything, yeah. such yeah. that if you say you know, stand up for one thing, you'll be tarred as being, oh, well, you're, you'd say that because you're from this group or that mm-hmm. group. And I just, I just refuse. I just think that's a wicked, wicked game that, that is being played there. And, um, and I, and I won't, <laughs> and I kind of won't play it. The politicization of, of, you know, of climate, of vaccinations and mm. masks and provision of education and all these sorts of things. It's, it's so damaging. And so I want to get, underneath that and go no I still want to talk about the issue not the whether somebody is um you know whether saying that that is a a liberal position or a labor position or a greens position or whatever I'm really not that interested in the in the party view of things but I do no I you know and I don't hold back though on pointing to the person who is responsible for stuff Mm. and I think that's where you know if my dad might say oh you've been going a bit hard on Scott Morrison lately because my dad is a my, my parents were conservative voting, mm. you know, North Shore blue tie wearing sort <laughs> of, you know. I grew up in a, in a conservative household of, of, you know, men's men and, and yeah. conformity and, and so forth. So I understand that mentality a great deal. So, yeah, I sort of think, well, I'm, I'm too bad if I'm going hard on the, on the guy who, who, mm. who he himself claim that role of responsibility so he can jolly well be responsible. Mm, mm, Absolutely. I think a lot of people, I think when they take aim at certain wings of the media or certain arms of the media who who do try and hold the federal government to account and say, oh, well, you're not going after the other side enough, 
the other side aren't in power. So it's, you know, it's the media's job to hold power to account. So, and it would be the same, and, you know, the same discussions were being had 10 years ago when we had a Labor government. So, uh, first dog, you know, as Cathy's just mentioned, I mean, the last four years have been an intense time to be a cartoonist from, you know, the material is endless. You've got Trump, you've got... The, the ascent of Scott Morrison, COVID-19. You, you've never been short of material. How do you approach each cartoon and, and do you have rules on how you pick your subject? Well, I usually have a conversation with my editors about um, what people want to read, which is one of the things that, that we give consideration to. You know, at the moment, people are reading a lot about COVID and vaccines, funnily enough, because people have a lot of feelings about those things, feelings and opinions. So we talk we talk about those things. And I, I mean, look, I, I take a slightly different view of the whole the politics of mm-hmm. the thing. I don't think we can be outside of the politics of any situation. And while I don't, when it comes to humans, I don't choose particular teams, certainly when it comes to, you know, furry animals and seabirds. Um, I'm very much on their side and will always take their side. So, so that mm-hmm. is, in, in, in essence... A, a partisan position, and I do. I have to disagree slightly with Cathy that that I, I think that the whole and I, I I understand where she's where she's coming from, and that you can't just sort of wander around saying I agree with these people and I disagree with those people outside of the actual work of the cartooning that you do, because you leave yourself open to to criticisms of of bias, which again I, I don't think I don't think is a real thing, but I understand that's kind of the that's kind of the environment we operate in. Whereas I just go, yeah, you can all get nicked. Um, and because right. I'm, you know, I, I do have opinions, and some people are Nazis, and some people aren't, and I'll make fun of the Nazis, and and the people who aren't, well, we'll see how they go. What's important to me is that we we don't sort of celebrate this idea that with Trump, the whole both sidesism thing was a really stark example of, mm. well, you know, there are there are good people on that side and there are good people on this side. And there simply weren't. In choosing not to take a position on something, you're choosing to take a position. Mm, um, yeah. And I think you can look at uh, any of the any of the media reporting over the years on something even like, you know, First Nations people in Australia and how they were used previously reported on and 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 how it's reported on now and i think what's happened is that because and it's partly the fault of facebook and twitter in a good way in that many people everybody gets to have their say now and the media's had to come to terms with how they're going to deal with that and more importantly the right has had to come to terms with how they're going to deal with that and clearly the right i think was going to lose control of all of these conversations, because all of these people were getting together and going, hey, wait a minute, climate change is bad and racism is bad, and and we need to uh, we need to do something about all of this and become a popular mass movement, which is the only way we're really going to save the planet. Mm. And so the right, who who own everything, because it's capitalism, thank you, um, have gone well. We can't control the conversation, so we're just going to blow it up. And that's what that's what Trump was. That's what Bannon talking about. Mm flooding the floor with shit. Uh, so basically, that's where the whole fake news thing comes from. So truth suddenly becomes irrelevant. And suddenly we have fake news. Suddenly everybody's got their own sets of facts. Mm-hmm. So when as a journalist, you're going to say, well, I'm just going to, to tell the truth. And I'm only going to tell, you know, what's really happening. That's, you might be doing that, but you're still doing it from your perspective. Mm-hmm. 
And it's because I remember, oh man, 15 years ago, 10 years ago when I started as a cartoonist, I was like, no, 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 we we have to make sure that 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 facts are what's always reported. And and whenever somebody says something that's untrue in government, um, we need to we need to refute it, and we need these fact checking things like you know ABC fact check and all stuff, which I have to say I came up with before the ABC did, but I couldn't get crikey to um, build a fact checking unit anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> and so now you were it. Is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now what happens is it's left to the cartoonist, and as soon as anything's left to the cartoonist, we're doomed. But now the government <laughs> says whatever they simply like, um, and the media can stand up and say, well, actually that's not true, or they can be like the Murdoch media and go and just simply not report that it's garbage. Um, and nobody trusts anything anymore. And so they get to do, they being the government, the people mm. in power, um, get to do pretty much whatever they like. So they're winning, you know, they've done a great job. And with all due respect to cartoonists, people shouldn't be looking to cartoonists to help guide us through these difficult times because it's only going to end in 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 a lot of tears there that's a much right. better answer well okay <laughs> well on that sobering thought uh look kathy the media in general has a diversity problem but cartooning if you don't mind me saying is is even less diverse than the average newsroom and mm. you know and not just diversity it really is a bloke's world does it worry you and and do you see a new generation of cartoonists coming along i mean you're one of the very few prominent female cartoonists within Australia that I can think of at least. How do you you feel about it when you're looking at it through the lens of diversity? Well, I think that the that the conversation of diversity has definitely moved on and and diversity when I was beginning, we were thinking that diversity was getting more women cartoonists. You know, that was that was that was that was it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, great. Oh, well, now there are some women cartoonists doing it. And there was and there was Victoria Roberts who mm-hmm. went to the went to the States. And there was Kaz Cook who, you know, decided mm-hmm. that doing cartoons, you know, regularly was not actually even though for the short amount of time that she was a cartoonist, she was still always known, she is still always known as the cartoonist Kaz Cook. Mm-hmm. Um Jenny Coops, uh, who had a fine mm-hmm. career and who was really one of my kind of role models uh, when I when I sort of stepped in, she was all, she also, you know, a chance meeting gave me one of my first opportunities with, with her. Judy Horacek, mm-hmm. who back was who was contemporary of mine when we were b- both beginning, but I I saw myself uh, as quite different to her in that there was the tendency at the at the time was to say if if you're a woman cartoonist then you you need to be writing about women's things all the time and um women's issues and and I rejected that that limitation at at the time and um and I've always said no I'm if I'm you know I want to be able to talk about all things and I don't want to always put them through the same prism having having said that then it, my life experiences inform my work and and so on. So when I come now to say something about what's going on, you know, when there's some you know issues of say how how women are treated in Parliament and so forth, I can you know come at it with, from a from a from a strong women's perspective and more usefully so because it's not just well she would say that she's a feminist sort of thing it's like yeah, yeah, you know yeah. like there's i think that there's some some grounding in that but the number of women cartoonists has 
not increased. In fact, it's, you know, it's been harder and harder for, for any woman to get a gig in it. Mm. Fiona Katowskis has been there for like 20 out of 30 of the years that I've been drawing. And, um, and she has, you know, she has struggled to get a prominent, regular, you know, mainstream or, you know, she hasn't necessarily chosen mainstream, but she has struggled to get a, a, a gig such that she could live from it. So mm. on the one hand, I think, you know, this like trying for trying for diversity when that was the, the pure goal was was gender diversity. It was a it was like on a hiding to to, to nothing. Mm. Like it was not going to it was not going to happen because of the aforementioned point of uh, a first dog that, that cartoonists don't leave. They don't retire. They don't. They you know, they die eventually. But they, they don't. They don't step down willingly. And cartoon positions have have shrunk considerably. Right. You know, there's far fewer of us now filling the available spaces and spread spread thinly. So we didn't even get to the point of saying. What about the diversity of people from other cultures? What about the our First Nations? What about, you know, these other perspectives? What about trans people and all the rest of it? These other perspectives have certainly not ever got a run in, in mainstream media, you know, and I see myself as in spite of being a woman doing the job, I'm still very, you know, mainstream probably in the whole thing and, and privileged and all the rest of it. I'm only, you know, it's only a, I can only play the the, the woman card if I really choose to uh, in, in terms of saying there's a mark of diversity there. But basically, I, you know, I just did the did the job and so yeah. on. But it, but the thing is of those diverse voices, at least they come up elsewhere and yeah. i have often seen that the the parallel career of comedy um comedy and satire where you know where people start off doing stand up and then you know evolve other other sorts of things at least that has evolved and women women's voices are as as sort of as usual to be found there and diversity of color and culture and and uh sexuality and so forth have grown up there so so that's maybe where where it is and it's you know maybe we're cartooning in the in the in this in the form in which i practice it will will be coming to an end in, in this country at least you know it still seems to happen around the world and then and, and oh, other people so. are, are getting are getting the idea but we've just got such a small arena for it here it seems but people still have things to say and young people grow up you know with with the the notion that cartooning is a kind of communication that gets things across and and if if first dog says that he went to uh, um sydney college of the arts uh, as as did i then we know that that our education there was about communication and visual communication and getting things across so i don't therefore think that cartooning is the only format already first dog's um mm. way of doing it is a very different way than the, than the old you know newspaper single single frame type of thing and and the people who put stuff up on you know and have their sites on the internet lord knows how they how they make a living out of it but but they're better <laughs> the younger people are better at doing it than we old dinosaurs but people find a way to 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 speak and to get messages across and and to and to find a, an audience hungry for an antidote to the to the sort of bullshit 
that they're otherwise fed. <laughs> well, look, we are just out of uh, time, but uh, first dog, if uh, you you have anything to add to that in about 60 seconds? Oh, well, look, it's re- I think, it, I mean, Cathy's right. It, does, it comes back to, it's a, it's a newsroom thing. Um, mm-hmm. the, the cartoonist hire is done in the newsroom and it's usually done by the um, old blokey news editor mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, the media for all of the newfangled internet, blah, 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 mm-hmm. is still um, is still focused mm-hmm. on, on, it's still very old school. And there are a great many more avenues for different voices um terrible phrase um but you know i look at someone like larry harris who who edits the nib and who you know and that's a that's a comic magazine Mm -hmm. compendium that comes out of the out of the u.s and that's jam-packed full of of all sorts of different cartoonists from different backgrounds who aren't just cartooning about the backgrounds they come from they're just being cartoonists and um i think that's that's also an important thing but for me it's it's uh i'm hardly a I'm saying the very kind of Kathy to mention that, I mean, I do a very different thing to the mm-hmm. traditional mm-hmm. cartoonist. I don't, you know, because I go on and on and I do frames and frames and I'm I'm not, I don't think I'm a diversity hire, but, but I mean well. And I think that's what's important. <laughs> I think so too. I think you both do. Kathy uh, Wilcox, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Tina. And First Dog on the Moon, thank you very much as well for being on Fourth Estate. It's been a pleasure. Oh, Thank you. It was an absolute hoot. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, do stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please stay well and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.